a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh man, this is one of those days for the record books. I'll explain here in just a moment. First of all, let me thank you for tuning in. Whether you're a first-time wrong thinker or a seasoned veteran of the uh, psychic wars, there's, uh, there's plenty of need to question the narrative. I'm actually going to give you some really solid examples of why that is. First, let me thank the sponsors who make this program possible, including quiltandsew.com as well as Ironsight Brewing Company, ironsightbc.com. If you're a coffee drinker, and you would consider a subscription coffee service, this is probably the one you ought to be looking at. Believe it or not, this is a, this is a huge growth market out there, apparently. My friend John Harvey has uh, founded Ironsight Brewing Company, ironsightbc.com, and he's talking fresh from the roaster to your cup in less than 72 hours. Lots of varieties to choose from, some very cool swag that you can take advantage of as well. You can click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. So let's start with, uh, first of all, we got our first uh, real full-blown blizzard going on. And uh, it's it, by gar, it's been a while. Um, I, I, I was supposed to drive to Boise today to pick my son up. He was going to fly in from, uh, from New Mexico. And I was looking forward to it. And in fact, I want to give a shout out to Bill. In Meridian, uh, Bill is a, a longtime listener, and I was like, you know, finally, I'll get a chance to, to go meet Bill, shake his hand. Um, we've been corresponding for quite some time, but the weather has, has uh, thrown a little bit of a wrench into our works. We're talking sustained winds, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour, gusts up to 50 miles an hour with snow, which uh, if, if you don't know, that's a, that's a pretty happy combination. Um, I, I, my curiosity got the better of me. So the blizzard warning went into effect, I believe, at 11 o'clock last night. 4.30 this morning, I was awake. I couldn't sleep and thought, yeah, yeah, it's time to get after it. So uh, my first thought was, what the heck? I'm going to go jump in the four-wheel drive and just go take a look and see what the road conditions look like. And phew, I'll tell you, it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's, it's not good at all. I think uh, one of the most uh, disturbing aspects was um, Highway 93 is a pretty major artery here in southern Idaho. It's, it's one of the major north-south highways. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a crossroads where it meets with Interstate 84, which is also a very major east-west corridor. And I don't normally see cars out there at, uh, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning, but there was a ton of traffic and much of it, uh, of course, crawling along because the, the visibility was bad. It's not quite whiteout conditions, but, you know, getting there. But uh, here's this great big FedEx triple trailer truck. Tried to make the turn into the FedEx depot just a little bit uh, south of, of where I live. And it uh, apparently went right into the ditch. I mean, buried. As in nothing short of a, of a wrecker is going to pull that thing out of there. What a nightmare. And it's blocking Part of Highway 93. And I guess, you know, I've, I've heard law enforcement has just had a super busy night. Lots of slide-offs, lots of crashes. So there's a lesson in here somewhere. Um, I'd probably start with don't let your curiosity get the best of you. I made it home safely, but 
You know, after going out to check the conditions, I came back going, you know, that advice about don't go out if you don't have to, that's really good advice. It, it made me think about the, the great blizzard of 93, which uh, that was one for the record books. And it hit here in southern Idaho. And I, I believe, I, you know, time causes us to kind of uh, exaggerate, right? When that fish, I swear, he was this long, you know. Um, and so I, I have to wonder if, if my memory embellishes just a little bit. But as I recall, it was about three solid days of snow with a 40-mile-an-hour wind. And I've seen the pictures of snowdrifts that literally were halfway up the telephone poles along Highway 93. That's, you know, 12 feet or more snowdrifts. Uh, it, it paralyzed this entire area. In fact, I believe President Clinton at the time declared it a disaster area. They had to bring in the National Guard to do snow removal. People lost entire herds of cattle. They lost horses. They lost other, lost other livestock simply because they could not get to them to, uh, to feed them and water them. Pretty tragic stuff. Some of the county roads, it, it took uh, literally weeks to get everything plowed out to where you could safely travel those roads. So um, I guess the lesson here is be prepared, right? Don't do the French toast panic and go buy eggs, milk, and bread, you know, as soon as you hear a storm is coming. But keep that gas tank full. Make sure you've got uh, an emergency kit in your car. That includes something warm. You know, people think, well, it's pretty weird. Why you carry a sleeping bag in your car? Because if, you if you get stranded, believe it or not, the safer thing to do is to stay with your vehicle which means you need to have some way of staying warm. Some would say, well, I'll just run the car. But if, if the snow's piling up, and especially if it's drifting, there's some risk involved in that. If you're not getting out every so often, clearing it away from your, your uh, exhaust pipe, there's a real good chance you're going to asphyxiate yourself. And for those with EVs, I don't know what to tell you. You get stuck, um, you're, you're really... You know, I guess, you know, watching that uh, that charge drop minute by minute, that's got to be pretty panic-inducing. But um, I'm not telling you not to buy an EV. I'm just saying there there were even less advantages in an EV in, in bad road conditions than, than uh, in a regular gas vehicle. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent. Let's get back to the, the matter at hand. Something that I've noticed dominating the news headlines here in the state of Idaho for the last couple of days that really has kind of piqued my interest and, and roused a, just a small amount of, of anger and disgust is uh, there is a physician by the name of Dr. Ryan Cole who was one of the few voices early on to speak out against the, the COVID narrative. And I'm talking about the lockdowns, the vaccines, the push to make sure everybody is on the same line and are on the same uh, page here and not to sharing misinformation and so forth. And there, a lot of people went after him because he, he was willing to challenge the narrative. And apparently the state of Washington, which is uh, essentially, you know, China on, uh, on the West Coast here, has decided they're going to suspend his license and punish him and make him write an essay and so forth. But here's what troubles me. He also has a license to practice in Idaho. And now you've got news organizations that are stumping for, well, why isn't Idaho punishing him as well? This is the crazy thing, though. He wasn't wrong. He was not incorrect. He did challenge the narrative. And that's exactly what Washington's punishing for. You willingly spread misinformation. They call it misinformation. But what it really was was he was sharing an alternative point of view 
that turned out to be true. And there's no apology from the narrative managers or the people who are pushing, you know, the various uh, mitigation efforts. I don't know if you saw this in the news earlier this week. Dr. Fauci, under oath, during which he suffered, of course, that incredible amount of memory loss. You wonder, wonders, why did he get a $5 million advance for his memoirs when he clearly can't remember anything or cannot recall anything, right? But one thing he did state for the record was, well, where did this, uh, someone asked him, where did this uh, rule of six feet distancing you know, for the sake of of safety, come from. Come on, we all saw the stickers on the floor. Nobody closer than six feet. You know, if you got into somebody's space, some people would literally freak out on you. You're too close to me, and you're not wearing a mask, you know. When asked where that came from, Fauci actually said, I don't know. It just sort of appeared. You understand what that means? He's conceding that... Sorry, I have to self-edit here for a second and just... He pulled that, or whoever came up with that idea from the CDC. I don't know where they pulled it from. I just hope they stood up before they did it. I'll just leave it at that. Remarkable. It was not based in science at all. Maybe it was a wag, right? a wild A guess. I don't know. But it was not based in science, and yet people acted as if it were. So... Forgive me for just a moment here if, if I get just a little bit perturbed at the ones who are like, look, everybody was just trying to do their best, and they were just, you know, trying to work with what information they had at hand. If that was true, why did they feel the need to censor and silence and cancel and fire anyone who challenged that narrative or who offered a differing opinion or different point of view? If they were really trying to do their best, you would think they would want to use as much information as was available They'd want to look at it from as many angles as possible, right? We need a good, solid solution. That means we've got to be willing to, you know, think about this from multiple viewpoints. No. It's because they weren't trying to just do their best. They were trying to assume and exert control, absolute control, and nothing less than everybody's unquestioning obedience was required. By the way, Dr. Ryan Cole is not the only physician who spoke up. There's a lot of physicians who spoke up and uh, likewise lost their jobs or otherwise, you know, had their medical licenses threatened, you know, for prescribing hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. The full scope of the uh, scam that has been pushed upon us and used to try to enslave us is starting to come into focus, and it's a really disturbing sight. I got a great commentary from Paul, Paul Rosenberg. We'll share that with you coming up next. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sorry, I got off on a bit of a rant in that first segment, but I've, I've been stewing on this for a couple of days. And I'm going to jump right to the article of the day, which you will find in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are show notes for January 12th, 2024. We have seen science morph from its, uh, its, you know, non-politicized version into a politicized persona known as the science, trademark. And it's been very unsettling to watch this. In fact, uh, when I saw Paul Rosenberg's article uh, coming to my email inbox yesterday, I was like, oh, this is very timely. It's titled, How Science Became 
an idol. Now, I'll tell you right now, some people will say, oh, great, here we go with the Luddite thinking, you know, just dismiss science, and we want to go back to living like cavemen. We're free, but we live in a cave and wash our clothes on rocks down by the river. I want you to hear Paul out, though. I think he he sounds a very reasonable note of caution, and he starts by saying, look, I don't oppose science. In fact, I advocate for it, but it's also clear that science, in quotation marks, has been turned into an idol and then into a social weapon. So he says, I'm going to briefly explain how that happened. But before I do, he says, I want you to understand what idolatry really is. And this is one of the places where I just love Paul Rosenberg because he nails it. He says, whenever you hold something above critique or above reality, you place it as your God. So here are two important quotes on the subject. First from Oliver Wendell Holmes and the second from Eric Fromm. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, men are idolaters and want to look at and kiss. They want something to look at and kiss and hug or throw themselves down before. They always did. They always will. And if you don't make it of wood, you must make it of words. I mean, he's speaking to human nature here. Eric Fromm said, the history of mankind up to the present time is primarily the history of idol worship, from primitive idols of clay and wood to the modern idols of the state. The leader production and consumption, sanctified rather by the blessing of an idolized God. Now, Paul says, please try to retain these concepts somewhere in your consciousness because they're important to the human future. He says, science was turned into an idol by a historically visible process. So this is the brief overview of how that happened. The Enlightenment, while important for the rise of scientifically derived knowledge, also had a dark side, particularly after 1750. It was then that the Enlightenment turned from being for things to being against things. Now, this change imbued the Enlightenment with the darkness of writers like Thomas Hobbes, and it became a tool for tearing down one's enemies. By it, intellectuals helped rulers capture the legitimacy then held by the Catholic Church, and at the same time, secure a legally privileged position for themselves. Nowhere was this strain of intellectual demolition more glaring than in the French Revolution, which was more or less the last stage of the Enlightenment. He says, I'll spare you the details, but it's worth noting or worth pointing out that movements built upon tearing things down are the ones that spin out of control. Wow, that's a gem of wisdom that needs to be written down. If whatever movement you're following is based on tearing things down, watch out. That's the one that's going to spin out of control. As Eric Hoffer noted, mass movements can rise and spread without a belief in God, but never without belief in a devil. So he says, please try to tuck that line into your consciousness too. Next, he talks about what science really is. And Paul Rosenberg says, science is a process, not a database of approved knowledge, and certainly not pronouncements from on high. Science is a careful process of finding errors and by and by it, defining durable, reusable facts. When a well-defined idea passes through this process without being shown false, we accept it as a valid theory, even though it will remain open to revision and even rejection. He says science has been a wonderfully useful tool, but it is not a system and sets no one as some sort of guide. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson, are you uh, paying attention here? So it's dogma versus dogma. He says it's horrifying to see the supposed arbiters of science attacking whatever fails to obey them. 
They are laboring to bully and to secure obedience by the application of social pain. And by so doing, these scientists, not all scientists, have joined a long chain of intellectuals trying to secure a legally privileged position. As a result of this long process, Western civilization has been left with no moral center. After all, the legitimacy being sought was held by the church, the initial propagators of Western civilization's moral core. To improve or, or even to replace the moral core of a civilization is defensible, but to rip it out and leave the civilization with a gaping void, that's vandalism. Simply put, the late Enlightenment and intellectuals of that type removed the moral core of Western civilization and replaced it with nothing at all. Westerners have had their moral core beaten out of them, not because anybody conceived of something better, but because of intellectuals who tore things down rather than building. And we've seen that most recently in an idolized science. That's a pretty good explanation. So what's the solution? Well, Paul Rosenberg says the solution to this situ situation is simply to get back to building and to move past the juvenile compulsion to tear things down. Oh, and also to retain science as a tool. But he says most urgently we need to restore our civilization's moral core. He says, I think Christianity and Judaism can be upgraded, but if not, we must establish a better and more benevolent moral core, then start passing it down from generation to generation. Reason being, our civilization will not survive with a gaping void where its heart should be. Again, this is why I love Paul Rosenberg's writing. That man has clarity and he has the ability to, to see things from just a slightly different angle. But to me, it's an angle that, that makes all the difference in the world. That part, too, about how, you know, these scientists and some, some of the bureaucrats who depend upon those scientists to give weight to the bureaucratic pronouncements. They're just intellectuals trying to secure a legally privileged position. Dr. Fauci is an excellent example of this. You can also th see this, though, in various, you know, directors of state health agencies who undertook the idea that, oh, yes, it is incumbent on me to be able to tell people when and where they can gather and so forth. Look, I don't have all the answers. I'm certainly not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, but, but I'm, I'm pretty good at spotting the patterns. I would say I've been actively paying attention for well over 30 years now. And I've learned a lot along the way, and I still have a lot to learn. But when we have people telling us, well, you can't safely get together with your aging mother because, you know, COVID. Granted, you know, older people, people with lots of comorbidities like obesity, heart disease, diabetes, were definitely more at risk from this virus. But for the vast majority of people, it was not that high of a risk. And I think that the biggest and most egregious thing that I've seen is we were told, in fact, we were coerced in many cases to go get that vaccine because of a lot of official pronouncements that if you get it, you won't spread the virus. And, you know, I think it was back in July of 2021. That's when you had President Biden talking about, oh, we have a pandemic of the of the uh, of the unvaccinated. They were blaming it all on people who wouldn't take that mRNA shot. And yet everybody still got COVID anyway. Many people, fully vaccinated, fully boosted, still get it. Howard Stern, I'm looking your direction, and they're shocked. Well, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> At least I had the vaccine. Look, I'm not wishing death or suffering on those people, but I am wishing that they would 
swallow their pride long enough to recognize you got duped. And maybe you used your position of influence to, to try to bully others or to punish people who wouldn't go along with the narrative. But I'm very grateful for those individuals who found the courage to resist, for instance, the, the shot mandates or doctors who are willing to speak up and say, look, this isn't working. Why don't we look at something else? Most of them have paid a pretty high price, if not losing their jobs and at the very least, you know, they've, they've had their reputations sullied and been blacklisted. And the people who did it to them wrongfully have yet to apologize or even acknowledge that they did something wrong. That's bad news. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right. I am on a roll today. So said the Pillsbury Doughboy, who I represent, or I uh, resemble, rather, more and more with each passing year. So as we watch uh, the legitimacy of uh, the ruling class evaporate like fog before the sun, they're starting to uh, panic. And one of the best examples of this that I can see is uh, actually a friend of Casey Whalen, who is a reporter from northern Idaho, had, had pointed out there are various groups in many different states and even at the federal level who are now pushing legislation to uh, outlaw what they call paramilitary activity or training. And, and some of them have gone ahead and come right out and said what they want to do. They want to make it illegal for there to be militias. Now, isn't that interesting? Because the militia is one of those few citizen bodies that's actually mentioned as, you know, part of our system of governance in the Constitution. They existed before the Constitution, but I'm just saying, as far as the federal government is concerned, those militias are protected and explicitly protected by the Second Amendment. But politicians seem nervous. Like, oh, well, you know, uh, we don't want people getting together. And, you know, they're, they're worried that people are going to threaten or intimidate politicians or other public figures. Isn't that already illegal? So why, why specifically do they want to prevent people from being able to organize themselves? I think we know the answer. The mask is coming off. The legitimacy is fading. And when people decide, look, we are not going to do what you say Somebody is going to want to send the Redcoats in to, to put those colonists right. Only this time, the colonists, uh, while they may not have quite the organization that, uh, that the colonial militias had, we are considerably more well-armed. And, and uh, approaching that point where, if push came to shove, you know, more than likely would be willing to fight rather than submit. I mean, what was it, uh, Illinois told everybody you got to register your so-called assault weapons. I don't remember what the compliance rate was, but I don't think they even got out of single digits. That's good. Texas, have you followed this? Texas has, uh, there's a particular park, and I'm, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of that uh, that park, but it's, it's uh, where a lot of border crossings take place. And we're talking thousands and thousands of people coming across there each week. 
And the state of Texas actually put razor wire across there. They put barriers across there. And the federal government actually sent in federal agents to tear it down and allow people to freely cross that border. Now, when I say people, I'm talking primarily it's military-age young men that are being allowed to flow into our country by the millions. I'm really more of an open borders advocate, but what I see happening here doesn't look like, oh, you know, people coming to find a better life. It's like, no, there is an invasion that's being allowed, and I can only assume it's for the purpose of we don't have enough domestic law enforcement and military to, uh, to put the people under the boot and to get them to submit. So they're basically allowing mercenaries to come into this country with the promise of if you'll help us subdue the American public, something's in it for you. I could be wrong, but that's, that's what it looks like to me. Well, the state of Texas has finally had enough. And Governor Abbott apparently mobilized the Texas National Guard, and they have taken over that park, kicked out the feds, and are now reestablishing those barriers and the razor wire and so forth to close that particular border crossing. I know it's like shades of Fort Sumter. I don't know. It's, you know, this is, it's, it's Texas land, but uh, there's, there's a little friction point for, for the federal government. So I want to share with you an article here from Connor O'Keefe. This is from the Mises Institute. The establishment is unmasking itself. And Connor says, two weeks ago, I wrote an article laying out the political class's struggle to preserve its legitimacy by fighting to regain control over the digital information space. The piece built on Martin Gurry's thesis that the wide adoption of the Internet has caused an information revolution that, similar to the adoption of the printing press, has allowed dissent to grow and spread beyond the control of the ruling classes. The results have been political shocks like the Arab Spring, the passage of Brexit, and the election of Donald Trump. If the 21st century has been a war to preserve the establishment's legitimacy, the current battle in the United States is the 2024 presidential election. He says there's truth to the familiar cliche that the next election is always the most important in history. As the federal government grows, spends more of our money, and intrudes more in our daily lives, the stakes of elections get higher and higher. Now that still holds true for 2024, but there's much more going on. In Anatomy of the State... After defining the state as the organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area, Murray Rothbard dedicates a chapter to how states preserve themselves. In Rothbard's words, while force is the ruling class's modus operandi, their basic and long-run problem is ideological. For in order to continue in office, any government, not simply a democratic government, must have the support of the majority of its subjects. This support, it must be noted, need not be active enthusiasm. It may well be passive resignation as if to an inevitable law of nature. Therefore, the chief task of the rulers is always to secure the active or resigned acceptance of the majority of the citizens. End quote. Now, in the United States... Connor writes, the political establishment has for many years evoked democracy to legitimize its actions in the eyes of the public. Doing so transforms any action they take into an embodiment of the people's will and any opposition into a selfish denial of everyone else's wishes. Boy, do we see that play out right down to the local level. But he says the Internet allowed the public to see that many views and beliefs that had been presented as fringe were in fact popular even more popular than the so-called mainstream ideas. By the way, I'll give you a quick example of what that looks like. How many normal people 
really are into the idea of, hey, we should take small children to see grown men dressed in women's clothes, gyrating around sexually and doing suggestive things and, and you know, under the guise of we just want to read stories to them. Most people understand that's perverted. That's deviant behavior. That's not appropriate for kids. But how does the mainstream media p- portray it? Why, it's a fringe, hate-filled idea. You should be ashamed that you can't see the good that these drag queens, I'm sorry, these performance artists are doing. Spin, spin, spin. Does that, that sound about right? They present it as fringe, even though it's, it's very mainstream. Actually, most normal people are like, yeah, that's, that's just not appropriate. Likewise, books teaching kids how to engage in various uh, sexual practices, particularly same-sex sex, not just suggesting it, but like showing them diagrams. Look, here, hey, wow, you know, cartoons. That's pretty salacious stuff. Normal people would say, hey, that's not right. These are kids. Let them have their innocence while they can. But the people who portray, who portray that as, well, you guys just have fringe beliefs and you're not being inclusive, they seem to have this attitude. If we, if we can't be innocent, then neither can you and neither can your children. Anyway, Connor O'Keefe says the revelation, that revelation that ideas and beliefs that were presented as fringe were actually quite popular bolstered the anti-establishment movements of the 2010s. And we're talking like Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, the Ron Paul Revolution, even Trump's. 2016 campaign, and it sent the political establishment into a crisis of legitimacy. Tens of millions of Americans sent Donald Trump to the White House in one of the biggest repudiations of the established political class in American history. In response, instead of reflecting on why so many Americans were fed up with them, the establishment decided to frame Trump as the root cause of all the nastiness and hostility aimed their way. According to them, one man was corrupting America with hate, greed, and Russian propaganda. That does sound about right. That thinking has culminated in years of establishment attempts to remove Trump from power and later to bar him from ever holding office again. First, there was discussion of ousting him using the 25th Amendment. Then came the attempts to tie him to Russian intelligence. Next, they tried to impeach him twice. Finally, they charged him with felonies. Now some states are trying to remove him from the 2024 ballot for a crime he hasn't even been charged with. The establishment is unwilling to admit that they are the reason Trump was elected. But ironically, by attempting to disqualify him from participating in the election, they undermine the illusion of democracy, their main source of legitimacy in the eyes of many Americans. And Conor O'Keefe says it's hard to see how that will go well for them. That's a pretty solid point he makes there. I think Trump's election in 2016, and frankly, most of the people who voted for him, myself included, in 2020, wasn't so much because he is the one who will save us. It's because he represented an alternative to this establishment that right now is grinding our lives and our country into dust, burying us in debt, devaluing our currency through inflation, trying to ruthlessly impose themselves into every possible aspect of our lives, and yet they'll tell you, well, it's, you know, it's a threat to our democracy. Everything Trump does and says, it's a threat to our democracy. They're not reading the room correctly. And even if they do manage to somehow remove Trump, I'm putting that in air quotes, they will find that people's rejection of their political class blessings are going to continue. Ah, then who will they blame once that they've done away with Goldstein? I guess time will tell. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, I am just on a tear today. Normally, I'm just, you know, good-natured, calm, rational. At least I think I am. But uh, I'm a little bit wound up. Could be because of, you know, the, the weather. It could just be that uh, I, I'm just losing patience with a ruling class that, that seems to insist that, uh, you know, I'm a threat. Just me. By my beliefs, by the way I live my life, I pose a threat to all that, you know, I, I won't even say all that they stand for because even they don't know what they stand for. It's just domination. But they use the term our democracy. Why, this is a threat to our democracy, by which they mean our rule. But I love to see them losing their legitimacy. In fact, I love helping to spread information that undermines their legitimacy. And it's not because I want to see conflict and I want to see chaos I just want to see oppression stop. I'm quite confident that we're capable of making the decisions of who we will associate with and how we wish to govern ourselves. And frankly, anything that's peaceful needs to be on the table. But that's not decisions they're willing to let us make. And it's, it's coming down to a contest of wills. And I think that the ultimate line in the sand is the day that they try to take our means of self-protection away from us, the day they actually send individuals to forcefully execute that, uh, that desire, that's the day their legitimacy is gone. And I pray that enough people will recognize that at that point they really have nothing to lose. You're, you're not going to comply your way out of oppression. It's just not going to happen. All right, I've got three articles I want to point uh, point out to you and share with you in my show notes at the Brian Um, one is from Jeff Minnick, wonderful writer for intellectualtakeout.org. You know, if it's true that politics is downstream from culture, then culture is probably where our efforts are best spent in seeking solutions. And Jeff does a great job of explaining how culture is wrecking our country and what we can do to reverse that. Now, he recommends some pretty down-to-earth things, and I'm, I'm not going to go through all of them, but he talks about reviving families, building strong communities, retooling the curriculum of our schools so we don't teach kids that, hey, you know, our, our history was completely illegitimate and uh, everybody is wrong based on their skin color or right based on their skin color. we got to get all that, uh, that Marxist dogma rooted out of the curriculum, and frankly, the best thing that could happen is separation of school and state. The school choice movement, I think, is a strong step in that direction. But until we effectively separate school and state with the same vigor that we've separated church and state, we're not going to see any appreciable difference. Also, I want to point you toward an article about uh, free speech. This is from Huck Davenport, which that's it's a pseudonym that this individual writes under. But free speech is the bedrock of democracy. Ellen Musk said this on at least four different occasions. But here's something that uh, you may not have considered. Free speech is essential to personal freedom. But you cannot have free speech if you don't have limited government. 
Without limited government, Western civilization cannot survive. And there's much more to this article, but that's the gist of it. And uh, free speech may be the bedrock of democracy, but limited government is the bedrock of free speech. The former can't exist without the latter. Very, very solid observation. And one last article. This is, uh, this is remarkable. This is from uh, Reverend John F. Noggle, uh, published on the, uh, Br- the Brownstone Institute website, which if you are not following Brownstone Institute, that's a great source of information. Some of the best information I come across on a daily basis, I find there. But, you know, the, the crazy thing about civil disobedience is no one really wants to engage in it until it's safe to do so. Which kind of negates the point, right? It's, it's kind of like uh, everybody's against slavery. Well, yeah, now that slavery's abolished, uh, it's very easy to be against it. You want to show some backbone? Go be against it when it's popular, when it's accepted as part of normal, you know, mainstream society. That is when civil disobedience, you know, on the Underground Railroad, for instance, would be, you know, a legitimate example of a real civil disobedience. Rosa Parks refusing to give up her her seat to a man on the bus. Same thing. She didn't wait until it was safe, you know, to do so. She went to jail for it. But uh, Reverend Noggle, I want to share a couple of things here. This is the moral obligation of civil disobedience. And he talks about uh, when he attended school in uh, the Oakland neighborhood of the city of Pittsburgh, he says, uh, contrary to what one might expect, I was one of just a handful of Catholic students enrolled in the school. It was, the school was called St. Agnes. He says the typical student at St. Agnes was black and non-Catholic with parents seeking a place of refuge from the Pittsburgh public schools. As such, the battle against slavery and racial segregation in this country occupied a significant amount of their instruction time. He says, we learned about the heroes of the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to Martin Luther King Jr. We learned that progress was made specifically by those who refused to obey unjust laws. And he says, in my young, innocent mind, I was left with a simple thought that I've held on to until today. Slavery and segregation only were allowed to exist because supposedly good people sinned through indifference. And they only came to an end when enough people arose who refused to conform to the injustice of the status quo. Now, he talks about uh, reading Henry David Thoreau's On the Duty of Civil Disobedience, something that was assigned to him in his sophomore year of high school. The moral obligation to disobey unjust laws nonviolently and then to accept punishment in the hopes of forcing change was one of the major lessons that he says he took away from his Catholic schooling. The willingness to embrace the consequences of such nonviolent direct action was one of the things I admired about the political left, even if I didn't count myself as one of its members. But he says, now over 20 years later, I'm forced to ask, what happened to the political left? The immoral thugs of Antifa and other groups commit violence in the name of direct action. And when police respond, they resist or flee instead of peacefully submitting to arrest. Finally, and most damningly, the left denies the right of conscience or protest to all their perceived enemies, instead surrendering surrendering themselves to the logic of totalitarianism. In fact, the year 2020 showed this bizarre betrayal of once-held values in full contrast. Violent riots were called good violations of lockdowns. Protests against lockdowns were derided as killing grandma. Remember that? Now, he goes through a lot of stuff here, but I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase here. He, He has four ideas that he shares about how we have a moral obligation 
to engage in civil disobedience. And specifically, he talks about how Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. uh, talked about what legitimate nonviolent action should look like. He also talked about how civil disobedience is precisely necessary as when society as a group needs to be convinced to act morally. King also addresses, this is point number three, the distinction between just and unjust laws. Just laws are to be obeyed, the latter are to be broken, but in a loving manner. That's a really great read, by the way. And fourth, in times of injustice, the moderate who levels the accusation of extremism is the largest obstacle. Right? The good people who just want to see things, you know, kept as they are. So, Reverend John F. Noggle says, look, perhaps we should all go back and read Augustine, Aquinas, Thoreau, and King. We are all called to the heroism of always choosing to act justly, even in the face of great opposition. Now, I'm probably preaching to the choir. I'm guessing that any person who has made it this far into this broadcast and and is still listening probably has a pretty strong sense of, of moral duty, and for that matter, moral clarity. Because I'll admit, you know, this is a bit much for people who are still, you know, finding their feet and trying to decide what do I stand for and what don't I stand for? What's safe to stand for? People who have the conviction and who say, look, I'm willing to suffer for my beliefs. They're probably the ones most likely to soldier on through, uh, you know, whatever it is I'm (laughs) sharing on a particular day. I just want to recommend this article from Reverend Noggle. It's so good. And, and it addresses something that I think we each have to answer at an individual level. Not everybody's on the same page, okay? I'm not willing to go out there and glue my hand to the road, you know, to, to uh, stump for, for climate change. And it's partly because I don't believe in, in the climate agenda. As you'll see in my show notes today, the, 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 the question is, why doesn't China seem so concerned about global warming? And the answer is because they already have a communist government. But I guarantee each of us can see examples around us of unjust laws or unjust policies that we are being told you must obey or else. And we have the opportunity to engage in peaceful civil disobedience. Look, masks was probably one of the best tests for this. And I'll admit there were times I failed, but my resolve is pretty strong right now. How's yours? I think we're going to need it in the days ahead. This is The Brian Hyde Show.